Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 60. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Updegraff. And we're continuing on. Uh, we got this mini-series going, going through David Pye's The Nature and Art of Workmanship. Uh, and now we're in chapter 9, uh, Equivocality, and we're uh, looking at the surface qualities. We're looking at the, the, you know, not just the overall form, but we're looking now at the surfaces. And Pi is, has come to the culmination of his argument. Yeah, so an initial read of this chapter, um, it, you have to dig into it to realize that he's coming to the crux of the argument. Right. Some people might read this and think, oh, this is just kind of tacked on at the end. But in fact, if you look at it carefully, you realize that actually this is kind of where everything comes together, really, for this argument. So uh, the idea of equivocality is, you know, the word itself is is like it means ambiguity. It's like too many voices talking at once. It's like a, a muddled interpretation, like you could take something multiple different ways. And he's looking at. Um, surfaces, the surface of an object to to explore and unpack this concept. So he's saying it's all about the importance of the surface quality. So he has these three areas that he, he talks about. Um, he calls them, let me see, at the end of the chapter, he summarizes, but he calls them uh, the uh, three estates. So he's talking about the estates of form, color and surface quality. And he's talked about the others previously, but now this chapter is all about surface quality. And we have found it to be a challenging chapter. Yeah, this, I mean, we've spent more time in discussion and debate about this chapter before we started recording this podcast yep. than any other chapter. Yeah. Uh, partly because it, it, he is getting into the weeds and getting, you know, kind of looking, you know, we, we were describing, we said, we feel like Pi at this time, if you, if this was a class, he would be having his binocular magnifiers on yeah, and he would be hunched over the surface of the tabletop. He'd say, now everyone come around and look at yeah, this. This is so look important. Really close. Do you see how these pores, they're not totally filled, yep. but you're like, whoa, and whoa, man. The students are going, whoa, professor, you're all right. <laughs> That's what this chapter kind of feels like because he's getting to the most tiny microscopic level of workmanship. And that's actually kind of his point. Because mm-hmm. he's saying, you know, as he's been saying, workmanship picks up where design leaves off. Yep. Design can only prescribe so much. It can only say to do so much and can only fix the outcome or the, the uh, final effect to a certain point. But then workmanship needs to take off from there. Right. And so Pi is saying, you know, the places we've already talked about in previous episodes, the close uh, uh, scale of life when we interact with an object we hold in our hands, that scale is so small that design can't really do a whole lot. Some, but not much when it's so close. Workmanship, the, the, the final surfaces that are left, really impinge upon us in a strong way. Right. And so he said that's why workmanship is so important. And then this chapter is really as we said, it's the crux of this argument is where he says, so I'm going to show you, I'm going to, let's look, let's get down on our hands and knees and look really close at the surfaces and talk about surface qualities, different kinds of qualities and what they say and what we think about them so that we can then therefore again, appreciate workmanship for what it is uniquely. Yeah. And so in starting the most, uh, the pinnacle chapter, of course, he goes on a three-page diversion. You know, <laughs> you start or, with a diversion. Yeah, you start with a diversion. <laughs> and this diversion is on this idea that he brings up 
of truth to material. So this is this is a uh, an argument that came about. Maybe it was rooted in the arts and crafts movement, where it said you have to be true to the material you're working. Right. There are there are certain rules to different materials. You don't want to violate the stoniness of stone or the woodiness of wood. You don't want to torture the material. You want to respect the medium. <laughs> right. Uh, let it be what it is. Like phrases like "bring out the grain of the wood." Right. Right. Um, which Pi goes to lengths to to uh, try and demonstrate that these are actually not objective statements. Right. They're subjective. They're they're up to a person's interpretation, their opinion, things like that. Um, as we know, there's a lot you can do with wood that seems pretty unnatural. There are some artists out there who do crazy things with wood. Um, mm -hmm. So, but Pi's case here is he wants to try and pick apart this argument of uh, truth to material. And he wants to show how it's not exactly a clear way of looking at yeah, and, and by truth to material, it just means someone saying, "I want to be true to the wood. I want the right. I want to let the wood tell me what it wants to be and go right. with it and let it." Be. And then he's saying, "Hold on a second. Yeah, what so do you mean by that? He starts exactly. poking holes at that kind of idea that uh, that materials, wood, stone, leather, have a particular will, <laughs> right? Or they have a, a a nature, an intrinsic nature that we have to work with. So that's what he's kind of pushing against because um, he's saying that there are um, there are properties, mm -hmm. there are objective properties, yeah. things like tensile strength and pounds yeah. per square inch and hardness and elasticity. Things an engineer would look at. Right? These are just basic properties. And that is such a thing, and that's objective. But when we're calling, when we're talking about, you know, the, the woodiness of wood mm -hmm. or the stoniness <clears throat> of wood or something. Or even saying, the beauty of grain. Like sure. who finds like what aspect of grain is beautiful. Right. And he's not saying that those things are, um, that beauty is irrelevant. Right. He's, he's saying that this, these kinds of things are more subjective experiences, that these are qualities, mm -hmm. not properties. <clears throat> properties, engineers are really concerned about tensile strength, things like that. Right. Qualities are an aesthetic judgment saying, uh, I see this as lovely, as beautiful, as, you know, whole. Right. And uh, one of the things he gets at here, he says that there are properties of materials that are really of no value to the artist, right? <clears throat> and some that are of value to one artist and not another. So he says, like, take, for example, metals. You could express the ductility of lead. That might be valuable for, like, a lead worker. One might even hint at its weight. Um, maybe you do or you don't care about its low melting point or its impenetrability to x-rays, right? So this is, if someone's casting lead musket balls, they don't really care at all that x-rays don't penetrate lead. But that is a, that is a physical property of lead that is uh, measurable by anyone on earth, right? However, the subjective aspects of it, it's, it's beauty, it's, you know, workability, that kind of thing. These are subjective um quantities, you could say, uh, that differ from person to person and from trade to trade. So again, he's talking about qualities measured by an engineer, and any engineer on earth could measure it the same way, versus properties. 
Yeah. And so he talks about this idea of bringing out the wood. People talk about doing that, bringing out the grain. And he says, what exactly do we mean by this? When someone says this, what are you talking about? And he says, it's better to think of that kind of thing as your, um, this is always, ex- that the grain is always expressing itself and we can, you know, do a better job highlighting it, mm. allowing it to be seen or not. We could <clears throat> obscure it. Um, but he says, we're not really bringing its nature out. It just is there. So this kind of language he's saying is not very, it's not objective. And maybe that person who's saying that isn't trying to make an objective statement. But it is interesting because sometimes I think it does, I think Pi would point out, I think his point is that you can have, say, you know, the furniture craftsman is selling his furniture and he's making objective statements about the quality of my furniture is high, high quality. And you look, I could see I, I, I was bringing out the grain and now mm-hmm. you can see this is a quality piece. Right. And I think that's the kind of thing he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. You're mixing up these categories of objective uh, properties of strength and durability and workmanship and you're describing it as bringing out the grain. Right. <laughs> it's just, you're, you're not being clear about what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, again, he's getting to this point, he's building his case that the surface is of all importance. And so he's saying, like, to make that argument of quality from the fact that you in your um, your definition of bringing out the grain, that you're going to make that a quality argument, that you're going to make a value statement about that. He's saying, you got to be careful with that because that's that's a personal opinion rather than something objective that we can look at. Now, as a little <clears throat> side note on this, I every time I've heard someone talking about bringing out the grain, or I said it, heard it, and whatever. I've always understood it to mean you're working the surface of the the wood in such a way that it's allowing the the figure and the the grain to be clearly seen. Right. As opposed to taking 80 grit and scratching the daylights out of it and putting dark stain on it and then, you know, letting it all be obscured. Instead, you bring out the grain, meaning, I think people mostly mean, you know, a sharp hand plane or a fine sandpaper maybe, really allowing that to be clean and then maybe using dye instead of using a pigmented oil stain or something so that you can really allow the grain to be not obscured, but clear, visible. I think that's what a lot of people mean, but I think Pi's trying to uh, get at something when people start making, you know, um, uh, the the statements about the nature of what wood is and it needs to be voiced. I think he's saying, well, I don't know. He, he says this, uh, similarly, when you cut wood, you cannot do anything either to emphasize and express the grain or to hide it unless by paint. It is there, ready expressed, whether you like it or not. You can, of course, incorporate it into your design, but that has nothing to do with bringing it out and expressing it. So, yeah, he's saying wood is wood. If you make an object with wood, the grain is there, and you can uh, confuse it, you can bury it and paint, but... For the most part, it expresses itself, and whether or not you incorporate that in the design is up to you. So you can make, I mean, I suppose an argument could be made that you can bring out the beauty of grain by using it in the design in a specific way, and you see that all the time with Mm -hmm. veneers and things like that, Um, used in a compelling way to create a pattern or to um, amplify the pattern that exists there. Uh, So that's what, I think that's what he's saying here, that um, wood has a pattern, has a grain, has a beauty, uh, you know, stay out of its way, kind of. 
Yeah. So he <clears throat> to to finish, you know, his this beginning with his diversion, he basically is wrapping it up by saying people claim that they're working wood naturally by, you know, they talk about directness and ease. Mm-hmm. So how directly, how few steps they have to take to be able to shape their wood. Is this convoluted or is this really direct? Right. And they think that means it's more natural. You're <clears throat> you're working with it. Um, but then this concept of ease is related that it's it's easy. So if something's challenging, you feel like you're you're working against you're fighting it. The he material. says these people will say, Oh, then that's unnatural. You're you're kind of going against the will of what the wood wants, mm-hmm. right? Um <clears throat> and so he just kind of systematically works through that, exposing the um the inconsistencies or the 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 problems with that kind of way of framing it because he says that all workmanship is is shaping something he even talks about the iron foundry and that's a pretty <clears throat> direct forming but it's right. not natural right. right yeah drop forging is not really what he, uh his opponents here in this argument are getting at but he suggests drop forging as uh sort of consistent with their argument and saying that's not what you mean right because then you should use different terms. Um, so after his excursus, we could say, into truth to material, he gets back to equivocality. Um, <clears throat> so he gets into, first here, I think this is a good, he gives a good um, definition of bad workmanship here, which is to say, uh, his, his, he's, he's saying, this chapter is about bad workmanship to a degree, but this is what he says. Bad workmanship is a matter of making mistakes through hurry, carelessness, or ineptitude, which thwart the design, or else of making things look equivocal independently of the design. So that second part is the point of this chapter. This chapter is about a specific kind of bad workmanship, and that is equivocality independent of design. That's muddying the waters of what this object is doing. Sure. So... Just to be clear, I mean, equivocality is not a word I use every day. No, no. <laughs> and we've we've already defined it, but equivocality, again, is this uh, sort of an incongruity. You're, you look at this surface, you see these properties, and you say, what? What is these going on? These things don't go together. Yeah. He gives examples <laughs> like um, something that is smooth and maybe polished. It's this nice, smooth surface, yet there's a like a sharp edge on it. And you think, oh, that's not right. Clearly, someone intended for it to be smooth and soft mm-hmm. and feel good, and there's a hard mm-hmm. edge. And that he would describe as equivocality or this incongruity. We say, mm, that's not according to what's supposed to be. That's not the design of this thing. So that would be bad workmanship. Right. That's an evidence of bad workmanship. The other example he gives is of, you know, in woodworking, as a smooth tabletop. You run your finger along it. You can see it, the designer intended for this to be smooth. I get it. Okay. So you run your, it looks like it is. And you run your finger and you say, yep, the workman was trying to make it smooth, just like the designer said it should be smooth. And the finger runs across the, you know, the, the jagged piece of uh, grain sticking up where the tear out was. And you go, ow, what right. is that? Yep. And you have that a sliver. That was a, a flaw. It was right? a mistake. So that you can say, <clears throat> yeah, that's bad workmanship because what there's an incongruity there. You're tr- it's in a smooth situation. It's supposed to be smooth and it's not. It's supposed to be soft and you have a hard edge. Those are the things that are disruptive and they yeah. kind of they're jarring. <clears throat> there's he he brings an example in from the world of mass production and I think this is uh, this is interesting. It's kind of an aside, <clears throat> but he says that there are instances 
uh, he says, usually seen when components are stamped out of sheet metal. So this is a, a smooth surface, right? Machine finished surface. And he says the sheared edge is neat and not perhaps raw, but it is visibly rough. Um, he says, if special finishing operations were done to clean up the edge before plating, the cost would be considerably increased. So they're omitted. The effect is quietly barbarous. So <clears throat> if quietly you can picture, barbarous. Yeah. So he's talking <laughs> about stamping sheet metal. You see this with plastics too, where uh, something is molded and then the edges are not cleaned up. So like cheap kids' toys made mm -hmm. of multiple pieces of plastic you look at the edges, the seams, and it's rough. It's not like the pieces is perfect, except for those edges. You know, the parts that are for kids to play with, they have this perfect smoothness. But uh, as a cost cutting measure, uh, it was not completed. That process wasn't completed to an, an even degree of finish. So he says, he says that's kind of barbarous looking. Um, he says it's like that, a highly polished piece of wood with a roughly sawn edge, um, which would be an interesting, you know, object for conversation, right? Mm. It's kind of an abstract sort of art piece. Mm. <clears throat> but yeah, so I mean, I think in particular what he's saying is he's not arguing for smooth or for uh, rough or for any particular thing. He's just, he's talking, he's pointing out the incongruity that if something looks smooth and you touch it and it's not, it's jarring, mm -hmm. right? And so he he talks about there's like a <clears throat> if you have like a hard skin that forms over something that's soft and it looks like it's soft and you touch it and this it's this hard crust you go oh yeah. what or um, you know a perfect mirror polish he talks about he spends some time talking about how when something is perfectly uh, polished he says it's kind of disorienting. It's kind of mm -hmm. jarring. He says it's unsatisfactory. And it's kind of a funny thing he lays out, but he's basically saying it's because you can't actually see the object. Right. When you're looking in something that's highly polished, you're not looking at the object. You're looking beyond the object, he yeah. says. You're looking through it at your reflection, right? And so he says, so that's also a disorienting thing because you, you're not really sure about the object. And it's not until it gets <clears throat> scratched up the, yep. the glass has some patina, some scratches, dents that you can not only see a reflection, but you see the this. Um, he calls it a screen. <clears throat> a screen. You have this this layer of of scratches that remind you of the object too. So it's a weird diversion that he goes on about that. But what he's the whole point with this is he's saying, listen, when we're looking at objects, something that is made, some people are going to say, I, I'm bringing out the woodiness of the wood the stoneness of the stone, mm. right? And they're looking to some interior quality that you can't actually get at. But his whole point is, no, I think you're not missing how important surface is. Mm. That we can't actually look inside of a bench. We right. look at the surfaces of a bench or we look at the the surfaces of a, a bar of gold. And he said, because we have... The reason is because we can't get inside of it, but we have these expectations. We we learn about objects by surfaces. Yep. So I'm just, this is my example, not his, but a bar of gold. If you saw a bar of gold in front of you, you look at it. What are you looking at? You're looking at the surfaces. Yep. You're not looking inside of it. You're looking at the surfaces. And based on your experience with things like that and the way it looks, you have an expectation about what that's going to be like. Yeah. 
So if you reach out for the bar of gold and you grab a hold of it and it's squishy and as light as a feather, right. you're going to be disturbed. <clears throat> you're going to think, what? The surface deceived me. Yeah. The surface was saying something that it truly wasn't, right. or that it actually wasn't. And that, I think, is the point of what he's trying to say. We're all, too many of us, we're overlooking how important surface quality is. Yeah. It says a lot. Because the surface of an object is all we ever interact with. That's right. all we ever handle. He says, <clears throat> because of this, we've habituated ourselves to extracting a surprising amount of information from the look of a surface. <coughs> from it, <clears throat> we judge not only whether a thing will feel rough or smooth, but also whether it will prove to be light or heavy, a good or bad conductor of heat, dry or wet, soft or hard, firm or quaking. He's got lots of descriptors firm here. Firm or quaking. Coated or natural, we all soon become adepts at this, just as we do at judging mood from the look of a face. Actually, so, uh, go ahead. Yeah, what were you It just say? reminds me of, uh, I don't even remember where this was, um, but it was in some discussion about connoisseurship of uh, artifacts, and I can't remember hmm. where it was, but there was this discussion about understanding these qualities, and this person was describing bringing an artifact trying to de determine its authenticity. It was like a sculpture or something, right? Is, I think it was like an Asian sculpture. And the question was, is this authentic <clears throat> or not? And there was this discussion about all these different qualities, things to look for, these kinds of marks, these kinds of finishes, these kind, whatever. You could have this long list of, of characteristics, properties that are laid out. But they brought it to a connoisseur who's seen thousands of these right. things. And it, that, I think it's this guy, he, he picked it up, they handed it to him, and he went, mm, fake. Huh. And there was something uh, that he couldn't explain that, that you couldn't say, oh, well, what's the property that you right. discovered that we overlooked? And he said, no, no, no. Yeah. It's, like a, it's like a combination of all the properties. There's something about the weight of this and looking at the whole thing. No, it's not right. And he couldn't yeah. put words to it, but he knew the experience. And I think that's the, that's the thing. He was assessing the the congruity or incongruity of the piece. Right. It looks away, it has a certain surface, it feels a certain weight, it smells a certain way, I don't right. know. But there's something about it. It's consistent. That it, yes, this seems authentic or no, it's a fake. And that's the kind of thing that connoisseurship is all about. Yeah, Identifying, understanding patterns in the world of these things and saying, yep, this fits the pattern. No, this doesn't fit the pattern. And I think what Pi is arguing is that all of that information comes at the surface. When we stand back and look at something, it's all surface there. And so he says, what's really important is he says, only good workmanship can supply these nuances. Mm. And without them, much of design goes for nothing. Yep. That's the, the emphasis of his whole book. He's saying design is really great. The problem is it's limited. It can only take you so far, and workmanship needs to pick up where design leaves off, i.e. at that close-range surface quality level. Yep. So <clears throat> in here, uh, Pi bashes sandpaper. <laughs> now, he doesn't mention sandpaper. <laughs> well, not per and he se, doesn't mention but... <laughs> it in any specific way, but my reading, <clears throat> like I was, I was approaching this chapter going, okay, so... I want examples. I want to know what he's talking about. I want to know how this applies, how this should apply to the way I think about making things. 
And so I'm reading this and going, okay, so this is kind of like that, the age old, the ancient argument in spoon carving. Do you use sandpaper or ancient? not? It's ancient. Oh, it's old. It goes way back to at least like 2013, I think. So do you use sandpaper? So Pi says this. Tell me if you hear sandpaper here. Our aversion turns as usual on the feeling that an intention has not been carried out, that something has not been done which ought to have been, that the surface has been polished to make it look smooth and cared for, but then we find we've been cheated and it is not smooth at all. The thing is ambiguous, equivocal. It blows hot and cold. <clears throat> so what I, what I hear there is when I make spoons with my limited skill set, and I find that place where the grain reverses right at the neck of the spoon, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm struggling here, or I'm trying to get the bowl, the bottom of the bowl smooth. Now, I can keep working and keep you know, pulling chunks out or having some tear out, or I can, I can make it smooth beyond the capability of my skill set. <clears throat> I can use a shortcut to make a surface that is what I was shooting for and hoping for, but couldn't do because of my limited skills. <clears throat> and so I read this and I go, okay, what Pi is saying is just that if you have a desire to execute a smooth spoon and you don't have the skill beyond making it artificially smooth, you just need to practice. <laughs> you need to work <laughs> at it and get better at it uh, so that you can have an authentically smooth spoon with those means that you're using to make it. Hmm. Yeah. That's what I heard. That's okay. where I saw. That's where I saw sandpaper. I, did, I, make, I missed the sandpaper part. Yeah. But the, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that he's fundamentally talking about is surface. They, I, maybe I, the way I'd put it is this way surfaces speak. And so they're saying something. And if, it, if they're saying something, they should be saying something true. I.e., and I think that's why he has such a hard time with something that's highly polished is because he's saying you can't really interpret. You can't really tell what's going on. Is that liquid? Is it there? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where is it? How close is it to me? He's saying the surface of a highly polished thing doesn't really show me much about it, right? Right. And so when something looks rough and you touch it and it is rough, I think he would say, ah, oh, yes, that's right. That is rough. I think it's the it's the incongruity and experience is fundamentally. Right. So if, if something looks smooth and you touch it and it's kind of raw, then you go, oh, wait, what? That doesn't seem right. This, this, this guy didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> right? right. I think that's kind of the, the way that he's, he's laying that out. But um, he, he ends up talking about on, um, toward the end, he has this whole, like, like four pages where he's going on and on about all these different kinds of surfaces uh, smooth, rough, uh, how wood pores contribute if they're partially closed through uh, wear over time. He talks about dents, and he has—he actually has these, the only diagram, the only figure in this chapter right. are all these little um, like cross-sections of surfaces with different kinds and amounts of uh, indentations yep. from things, pores and dents and stuff. I mean, this is, you are under the magnifying glass at this point, and he's <clears throat> He's talking about the aesthetic value of what you see under a magnifying glass, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? But I mean, that's how we experience a lot of objects. Um, and I think what's really uh, interesting about this is he, he's talking about 
Uh, let's see, this is on page 99. He, so he's talking about these surface qualities and the subjective importance that they do really actually have. Mm. Um, and that these are peculiarly uh, the workman's preoccupation. So uh, he says that, uh, this is interesting, he says, um, consider the difference between the surface of an eggshell and shark skin, a rose petal and velvet, hmm. ivory and soap, a peach and a baby's skin. He says, we have few enough names for colors, but for surface qualities, all but none. Right. Yet the variety of our experience of surface quality must be every bit as wide as that of color. So he's saying um, that there is so much variety in, in surface that we experience. Uh, and we have words, different words for color, but not really. We have different names of color. Uh, but in surface qualities, we don't even really have that. He says the extreme paucity of names for surface qualities <clears throat> has quite prob probably had the effect of preventing any general understanding that they exist, right? So when we don't have words for something, they don't exist. Yeah. You can tell, you can sense his frustration almost right? here yeah. in this chapter. So, I mean, I don't, <clears throat> I, I forget the details of this, but there was no ancient concept of blue, mm. at least in some cultures. There wasn't a word for blue, so the sky was described as black. Mm. Interesting. Right? And so blue didn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. for, for a long time, there was just, the concept was, uh, was foreign. It didn't exist at all. So he's saying, when, when something is named this is that, right? Then you can identify it and you see it everywhere. Every time you learn about a new thing, why is it that I only see Xterras on the road? Right. It's because Mike just got an Xterra you know, last year. <laughs> right. And I realized, oh yeah, Xterras They're are everywhere, everywhere. Right. And so he's saying, when you name it, when you see it, there it is. And then you can uh, identify what it is. Then you can begin to um, appreciate and develop uh, different nuances and say, well, this one's like this and this <clears> one's like that. But he's saying, this is not good. We don't even have words to distinguish between types of surface qualities, mm -hmm. uh, or we at least don't have it in, in uh, a you know, mainstream Broadway. Uh, we have texture. In right. the last chapter, he talks about texture, which just means you know, rough from yeah. three feet away. Like it's, <clears throat> exactly. That's not a very yeah. sophisticated set of vocabulary for yeah, the surface qualities. The idea of smooth, like a tabletop. Like we talk about a a smooth planed surface, right? Which is as accurate as we can get with describing a surface, but all we're doing is saying what tool was last used on it. Yeah. Like it doesn't tell you much about how that feels. You can imagine some of it, but it's not, for pi, it's not precise enough. And you can see here as he, he wraps up this chapter, just this, this sense of he's trying to make it clear and he's trying to spell it out, but he's realizing that language is limited here. And he says that in this chapter. He says, yeah. I'm, I'm talking about stuff that can't really be talked about. This is what's so maddening. He said, if I can show you, and he talks about the differences between um, a, a worn finish and old uh, French polish that's worn away. And he's all, all these things I can't really, I mean, he's struggling to explain, but he says they're really important. Yeah. And that's actually, I think it's, the struggle that he has in this chapter to explain it actually makes his point even stronger because i.e., what he's drawing or what he's illustrating is that designers can't prescribe yeah. these things. He can't write about it and designers right. can't prescribe it. It just has, it's a physical tactile thing that mm -hmm. only 
workmanship, whatever kind of workmanship, whether it's a machine-produced thing or off of a hand plane or off of a knife or whatever, when something is made, that the, the workmanship is what accounts for our experience of the surface, right? not the design. <clears throat> and our experience with the surface is our whole experience of the object. Yes. That's kind of what he's saying. So that's sort of, I mean, he's basically, that's why this chapter is sort of the, the uh, culmination or the crux or the, you know, the, the pinnacle of what he's trying to argue with this. There are two more chapters after this chapter, but this point he's basically saying that um, this, we have form and color, but this third one that we're all overlooking is v- just as important and uniquely belongs to workmanship. Therefore, workmanship is... Uh, contributes something uniquely to design and right. um, uh, created okay. artifacts, and therefore we need workmanship, and you un- and especially workmanship of risk can contribute this diversity. Right. So, his whole argument for workmanship of risk is not some romanticism t- attached to hand tools, or even Ruskin's interest in um, you know freedom in society or something like that. The particular interest for for uh, for Pi in this book is to to look at this from an aesthetic standpoint. Why is workmanship of risk so valuable? Right. And it's for these kinds of qualities yep. that are uniquely available uh, through this process. Yeah, and you know we can't help but agree. We love <laughs> we love the surfaces of antique and handmade furniture. It's you know as as Pi finds out here, it's hard to even express why. But um, this chapter has helped me a lot in wrestling through it to try and understand the why, you know, to to why we love this so much. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's a good one to, to work through. It's a good one to go through with a pen and to really sit and ponder. And then to debate with a friend about it. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you all for listening to the Mortison Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comments or questions, leave them below. And if you could, uh, leave us a review. We really appreciate that. And we will catch you on the next podcast.